Paul Berghaus and his family have been a part of our church now for two and a half years. And they've been a blessing to us. And uh, it will be a blessing for us to hear him one more time come and proclaim the good news. And so I welcome Paul uh, into the pulpit this morning. morning. When, uh, when Mary and I first attended here at Mid-Cities, the very first Sunday, we sat in front of Susie and Wayne Wiley, and uh, we turned around after the service just to say hi and, and had a warm welcome from them both. And as we introduced ourselves and mentioned a little something about who we were, Susie said, oh, We've prayed for you before in our women's prayer group uh, for when you were deployed to Iraq. Uh, this would have been about a year prior or so. Uh, and it touched us very much at that moment just to see how God uses people that you may not meet until later down the road to pray for you, to support you. Uh, it was a great welcome here at Mid-Cities um, and we've been blessed here ever since. And we ask that you would continue to pray for us as you have in the past as we go on to, to other things that God has for us. But thank you for your prayers and, and thank you for your encouragement uh, as, while we've been here. Uh, let's turn together in our Bibles this morning to the book of Job. You'll see that the title for the sermon this morning is a theology of suffering, and that's kind of ambitious to try to, to give you a full theology of suffering in just one sermon. I don't think even enough books have been written yet to give a complete theology on that particular topic. But I'd like to look at a few things from this particular chapter of Job this morning as we consider what happened in Job's life and how God has given this to us as scripture and, and as his word to encourage us in our lives when we go through suffering as well. So Job 38, we'll look at the first 11 verses of this chapter this morning. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's word. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what... On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors, when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come, and no farther? 
and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for this portion of scripture that you have given to us. May you give us a greater understanding of your word this morning, and even more so, may we see all that our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us as we consider your work in the life of Job, your wisdom, your counsel, and your word to him. May we be encouraged as we look to the same Redeemer and the same Savior to whom Job looked to find our only hope and our lasting hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Shortly after I returned from a 12-month deployment to Iraq in 2006, I was asked to be part of a panel discussion, to be on the panel, kind of answering questions for young chaplains in the Army who were preparing, potentially in a matter of months or maybe in a, another year or two, to deploy as well, and to answer questions about what that kind of ministry is like uh, in a combat zone. And one chaplain stood up and went to the microphone and asked the question of everyone on the panel, what is the one thing that you recommend that we know uh, before we deploy overseas as a chaplain? And when it came time for me to respond, uh, I can't say that this thought was original to me. It was something that I had been counseled and, and guided toward by another chaplain. But my answer to the question was, make sure you have a theology of grief and suffering worked out as much as possible uh, before you go. Make sure you have a theology of grief and suffering worked out at least uh, to the point where you feel settled with it, uh, as much as anyone can be settled with that, before you deploy. Now, I've been thankful as a chaplain to bring a Christian perspective to the suffering that, in some cases, is unique in the life of a soldier, uh, to understand the stress, the challenges, the losses, uh, the tragedies, uh, the unfairness of life that sometimes soldiers experience, but really, that's true not just of soldiers. That's true of anyone living in this fallen world. We all try to grapple to understand why we go through certain things, why we lose certain things. And it's not easy to understand. In fact, I would submit it's impossible ever to fully understand why those things happen. And for Reformed Christians, for Christians who understand that we have a completely sovereign God and a completely good God, I think maybe we have even more of a challenge uh, to understand that. Because we can't simply say, well, God allowed this to happen, or perhaps Satan got one over on God this time around, uh, as maybe others could say. But as Reformed Christians, we know that's not the case. We know that God is sovereign. And so that can make it even more difficult. And it made it difficult for Job. Because despite what certain commentators might say about Job's own struggle here in the book, uh, and we'll look a little bit at that later as I read a quote uh, in that regard, uh, 
Job also, like you, understood that he had a completely, fully sovereign God and a completely good God. What he couldn't figure out is the wisdom of God. Why God would choose to do certain things in his life the way that he did. And so, as we look at this passage this morning, I want to look at it in terms of three questions that I think this passage answers for Job, but they're the same questions I think we find ourselves asking. And I pray that God will use this passage to answer, at least in part, those same questions for us this morning. The first one is, when I experience suffering and grief, what should I believe about God as I go through that? What should I believe about God when I witness evil in the world or when I'm the, the target of evil in the world from either the world or the devil? Or when I lose something or someone very close to me, what should I believe about God? We could title this with uh, an issue uh, that the church has dealt with for centuries, and that is the problem of evil. You've probably heard it phrased that way in other contexts or in other books. The problem of evil. How can a perfectly good and sovereign God exist when there's evil in the world? Now, we could logically dismiss that challenge right off the bat and say, well, if we didn't have a sovereign and good God who was the standard of what is good and what is evil, we would have no basis for defining evil in our world to begin with, and so the problem of evil kind of disappears logically. Uh, we could rebut it that way. But, of course, you know, that's a helpful tool if you're debating someone uh, and looking at this purely from a logical standpoint but in practice, that doesn't go that far uh, because you recognize that evil is real in the world and you suffer the consequences of that reality. And so we need to know more than just uh, a, a logical, a rational explanation or dismissal of any challenge against the existence of God on that basis. And people do resolve this problem in other ways. Um, I'd like to read a, a quote here out of the book, When People Are, Are Big and God Is Small, by Dr. Edward Welch. And he addresses this issue, and he quotes an author who wrote a book with the title, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Um, I much prefer a phrase that John Gerstner used, and I think maybe he borrowed it from someone else. Um, instead of saying, why did bad things happen to good people, he would always ask the question, why did good things happen to bad people? Uh, that's really the, the more puzzling question, isn't it? But anyway, uh, this particular author, who is a rabbi, uh, wrote this, and particularly about the book of Job. The author of the book of Job is prepared to give up his belief that God is all-powerful. Bad things do happen to good people, but it is not God who wills it. God would like people to get what they deserve in life, but he cannot always arrange it. Forced to choose between a good God who is totally powerful or a powerful God who is not totally good, the author of the book of Job chooses to believe in God's goodness. Now again, that's a perspective of this particular rabbi 
that unfortunately, or we should say fortunately, the book of Job disagrees with, uh, even though he's exploring that very book. And so Dr. Welch makes this comment uh, based on that quote. Either God is not loving or God is not powerful, says Rabbi Kushner. And that's really the answer that a lot of people come up with to this problem. Either God is not loving or God is not powerful, one or the other. Either way, God's true glory is quickly tainted by such thoughts. He becomes smaller in our minds. We no longer fear him appropriately. We only fear people who seem more powerful than ourselves. And so that's where that solution to this problem goes. Uh, But scripture teaches us that God is good and totally good, and that he is also at the very same time completely sovereign. I'm reminded of the words of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, when he confronts his brothers and sort of the the truth comes out about everything that's happened. Um, And his brothers are afraid that now Joseph is going to retaliate against them for having sold him into slavery. And he says to them in, in words of comfort, but also very profound words that I think answer this issue Uh, succinctly he says you meant it for evil meaning you meant all of what you did to me selling me into slavery for evil but God meant it for good not God allowed it for good or God looked away for a moment for good but God meant it he purposed it he planned it for good even the this evil not that he was the author of that sin But still, he meant all of that for good. And that's what we find here in the book of Job as well. And God reminds Job of this in our passage and in the chapters that follow chapter 38. God reminds Job of his sovereignty as we read here in these first 11 verses of chapter 38. And the point of all of these questions, if you scan down in your Bible and and you read just these questions, but as you continue on for the next four chapters, where question after question follows from God directed to Job, the point of all of that is to show Job that God's ways and purposes are really beyond human knowledge. Job must not lean on his own understanding or even on a desire to understand. He can't hang everything even on that desire to understand. Even if he can't understand at that moment, he shouldn't even pine away for years and years to come to try to fully understand God's ways. And the more we know about the attributes of God, the more that we are reminded of God's sovereignty and his goodness, not only here in the book of Job, but as we read throughout the entire scripture, the more we can rest in his providence. And so what should we believe about God? Well, the same thing that we've always believed. When we come up against suffering, we continue to believe that God is good and that God is completely sovereign. No matter what we experience, uh, nothing changes that. But now our our next question, uh, even if we find 
peace in knowing who God is and what we should believe about him. The next question that may linger over time is, why has God done this to me? Why has God done this to me? And it's a common question. As I said before, it's, it's the question that Job struggles with throughout the book uh, of Job. And it settles in over time. You know, initially when something happens to you, some kind of loss, uh, some kind of suffering, your initial response may be a gratitude for God's protection, that he spared you of something worse, or that you see a measure of his faithfulness and goodness in the initial shock of whatever you might experience. But over time, even that may wane or be challenged if you're going through a prolonged period of suffering. And people get tired. People get tired of suffering, don't they? Uh, You know people who have suffered with illnesses or other issues in their life that get tired of, of suffering over time. And so this question of why comes. And it comes to Job and it, it comes to us. Now, Job had three friends that you know about uh, who came to see him shortly after he had lost his family and lost his possessions. And uh, after a while of just silently comforting and encouraging Job, they began to think about the question, why also? Why has this happened to our friend Job? And of course, you know, they came up with the wrong answers. Uh, They tried to answer that question too quickly uh, and based off their own uh, knowledge of things. And not that even at points what they said wasn't accurate um, as they tended to center their answers upon something that Job must have done, some kind of sin that he must have committed to bring this about. Uh, And that can certainly be the case in, in people's lives. But it wasn't the case in Job's life. And so they, they too hastily answered that question. And even Job himself doesn't look to his sin as the cause of his calamity. But he begins to question God about his methods, about God's wisdom. And in one sense, he assumes the position of prosecuting attorney and begins to question God. And he puts God on the witness stand and wants God to defend his methods and his ways to his own satisfaction. That reminds me of something else to to read you one other quote here this morning uh, from an essay by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock. Um, The Dock being a, I believe, a a British term, legal term, for the witness stand, what we would call the witness stand in our courts. C.S. Lewis writes this, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, C.S. Lewis contrasts the ancient man with the modern man, the roles are reversed. He, meaning the modern man, is the judge, and God is in the dock or on the witness stand. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it the trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Man sits as judge and God sits in the witness stand. And I think if we're honest, 
there are points there are points during our own suffering where we place ourselves on the bench and we place God in the witness stand or we assume the role of prosecuting attorney and we demand that God give us a reasonable answer for what he's doing in our lives and he doesn't he doesn't it, to our own satisfaction in our own self-centered kind of maybe even self-righteous way and God doesn't give an answer to Job in the way that Job expected as Job began to question God's wisdom and instead God shifts the proceedings away from the circumstantial evidence of Job's life that he's bringing before God. And God begins to speak here in chapter 38. And he begins to cross-examine Job. <laughs> God says, okay, Job, I've heard enough. I'm going to ask you some questions now. And so he asks questions like this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. In a bit of uh, divine, you could say, sarcasm. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. And of course, Job has no answer to any of these questions. And it leads us then to a a third and final question as we think about suffering. If Job cannot understand the ways of God and certainly cannot answer these questions that God poses to him, how is he or how is anyone to live through suffering? How do we live? Because we have to live. We have to, to move forward through suffering. And so how do we do it? And we do it by looking to the person and work of Jesus Christ, just as Job did, ultimately. Uh, and we see, even in the, the book itself, as Job wrestles back and forth with the wisdom of God and trying to understand that, even as it shakes perhaps his faith, uh, even as you've had your faith shaken at times because of suffering, Job was still able to say in chapter 19, Verse 25 and following. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. And if you turn there in your Bibles, just briefly, to chapter 19, verses 25 and following, I'll read the rest of Job's profession of faith here. And Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, 
and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. That's Job's answer. And that's our answer for the suffering that we experience. And that's how we go through it. We may not know anything else. We may not know why God has allowed something. We will never know fully why God, at least on this earth, uh, perhaps in heaven we will know, if not completely, at least infinitely more, why God allowed certain things in our lives. But we know this, just as Job knew, that our Redeemer lives and that we will see him standing on the earth on the last day. No matter what we might lose in this life, however it may seem that the world or the devil is victorious on a day-to-day basis, on the last day it will be Jesus Christ standing on the earth in his flesh and we in our flesh, bringing about that victory that he won on the cross when he died for our sins and when he rose then from the grave three days later. I know that my Redeemer lives. That was Job's answer. That's what he needed to tell himself over and over again as he struggled with the suffering that he was experiencing. And it's the same thing that we need to tell ourselves over and over again. And there's something more about our Redeemer Jesus Christ that this passage places before us this morning. Because if you look at all of these questions that God asks Job, and then you think about Jesus Christ answering these same questions in place of of Job, Jesus had much different answers, didn't he? He was there when God laid the foundations of the earth. He determined the measurements. He stretched out the line upon the earth. He laid the cornerstone. He was there when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy to his praise as the creator of the world that we see around us. He was the one who shut in the sea with doors. He was the one who determined its limits and said to the sea, this far shall you come and no further. He was there. And yet, when Christ faced his own suffering, when his father called him to go to the cross, to die for his people, even though he could answer those questions and say, I was there, and he could claim a right to avoid the suffering that God had set before him, something that Job could not. Job couldn't claim that same right. Jesus, instead of questioning the wisdom of his Father and the will of his Father, he submitted to it, and he understood it. And he knew that there there was a purpose in his suffering, the greatest purpose of all that God could give for any suffering, and the greatest suffering of all that any man would ever experience, the suffering of bearing the sins of his people, the suffering of being forsaken by his father, something that you and I will never experience. He faced all of that with hope and purpose because he knew his father is a sovereign father and a good father. And he knew that there was a a great and mighty purpose to his suffering. And so, as you live in the midst of your own suffering, 
even if your circumstances change, even as Job's circumstances changed. We know that Job received back twice as much as he had lost, but he never received back the family that he had originally, did he? So even though he received more at the end of the story, so to speak, there was still a loss. There was still a scar there of having lost those who were, who were dear to him. And whether your circumstances change or do not change, and sometimes they don't, may all of us say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that one day I will see him in my flesh, that he will stand at the last day upon the earth. That is our hope. Not that things change for us in this life. They may never change. But the one thing that is constant is the victory that our Lord Jesus Christ has already achieved and that he will fully make known when he returns. God calls us to look to our living Redeemer, whom we will one day see face to face and with whom we will live forever, free from sin and free from sorrow. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you that in your word, in the midst of the rebuke that you give to us and even to those who were the the object of it when your word was written or spoken, yet there is great hope and great comfort. For you are a God who speaks words of comfort and hope to your people, even as you chastise and discipline us. And so, Father, may we draw great comfort from the life of Job, from the book of Job, from your words here, as we are reminded of your sovereignty and your absolute goodness, but also as we are reminded of our Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we continue to look to him day by day and rest in all that he has done for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.